conservative position stems from a genuine conviction that a world thus emancipated will be ugly, brutish, base, and dull. It will lack the excellence of a world where the better man commands the worse. This quote from political scientist Corey Robin captures an essential element, a desire for a racial and gendered hierarchy. The greatest myth entrenched in the minds of liberals and conservatives alike is that we all share a basic vision of a common good. We merely disagree on the technical details of how to reach that good, so the myth goes. We need only come together, uh, come to the table to find agreement, maintain civility while refusing to call anything wicked. We are supposed to see cruelty and ignore it, preferring only to see misguided benevolence. Hanlon's razor, that idea that never you should never attribute to malice, what is adequately explained by stupidity, well, that's true often enough. So we figure all problems would disappear with enough consciousness raising. And the capitalist machine depends on this myth. For the last eight episodes, we've been looking at white evangelicalism's past. In these final two, we're looking at its future. And it's not a happy future. My claim from the beginning is that it won't moderate. It will either radicalize or die off, or both, but it won't moderate. So let's consider its grievance against society, a desire which is theocratic but also fascist. First, a case study. A myth was born one day after the Obama administration announced its Homeowners Affordability and Stability Plan in February of 2009. The plan would invest $75 billion uh, to assist seven to nine million America, seven to nine million Americans, hopefully slowing the foreclosure crisis at the heart of the Great Recession. Reporter Rick Centelli fielded questions from hosts at CNBC. He was saying, "Quote, you know, the government is promoting bad behavior," and he began bef- uh, suggesting the administration could uh, conduct an online poll to gauge whether Americans desired to subsidize what he called the loser's mortgages. He invokes old tropes of personal responsibility and carelessness to suggest property should be repossessed and given to, as he put it, people that might have a chance to actually prosper down the road. Because we should, as he put it, reward people that could carry the water instead of drink the water. The traders behind him during this exchange are cheering in agreement, and Centelli soaked in the attention with arms raised. He directed his voice to the floor, shouting, How many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage and that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills? Raise their hand. And the audience boos. And then he adds, President Obama, are you listening? He red-baited with an allusion to communism in Cuba. He even at one point suggested the crowd, which is a collection of bankers and traders, represented a pretty good statistical cross-section of America. He fired off criticisms of struggling homeowners who he characterized as losers and in the administration's response. Then he finally said, we're thinking of having a Chicago Tea Party in July. All you capitalists that want to show up to Lake Michigan, I'm going to start organizing. By the end of the day, the web domain chicagoteaparty.com, which had lied dormant since its initial registration, had been updated with the Santelli rant. This particular domain had been registered months back, merely one day prior to the election of Obama. Likewise, the Koch brothers had first registered the domain usteaparty.com back in 2002. Soon, the tax day tea parties, 
popped up across the United States with funding and organizational support from the conservative donor class and exposure from Fox News. So it was many things. It was retribution for the election of the first black president. It was blowback from the financial collapse. It was a consequence of unlimited funding after the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. But it was also the culmination of years of planned activism, the resonance of racial resentment and anti-tax dogma, and an upsurge of libertarian power for a moment that would soon be displaced by a, a, a white nationalist power. The plutocrats had turned the slashing of top marginal tax rates into a moral crusade for serfs who felt they too might be robbed by losers if and when they chose to rise as millionaire entrepreneurial winners. So where was the white evangelicalism in all this libertarian noise, which seemed like a return of the religious right cast but completely bereft of God talk? Well, that's what makes the Tea Party such an interesting case study to me on theocratic and hierarchical desire. Researchers David Putnam and Robert Campbell came out with a widely influential book called American Grace a few years ago, and it was one of the first in-depth case studies of the rise of not just American religion, but this category of the nuns, those with no overt religious affiliation. What drew my attention, though, was an addendum that they provided afterward, providing some of the earliest longitudinal research on the Tea Party phenomenon and its relation to religion. Original data was gathered in 2006, and then the same people were requeried in uh, 2011. So whereas Tea Party rhetoric focused on the size of government or debt or taxation, and whereas it claimed no partisan loyalty to a major political party, Putnam and Campbell demonstrated the self-deception involved. Views on the government's size or scope, like views of debt, were actually not identifying markers in the data. Two factors stood out more than anything else that, in 2006, would predict Tea Party affiliation five years later. The strongest predictor was simply prior affiliation with the Republican Party, which laid to rest any claim of independence. The second predictor was a desire for theocracy. Respondents' theocratic tendencies were gauged via three basic questions. Questions of whether our laws and policies would be better if we had more deeply religious elected officials, whether it is appropriate for religious leaders to engage in political persuasion, and whether religion should be brought into public debates over political issues. Anti-black, anti-choice, and anti-immigrant views were all in the mix of identifiers for Tea Party affiliation as well, but the, as the movement ebbed and its animus later flowed into Trumpism, we saw how theocracy uh, and libertarian rhetoric actually covered for a type of white nationalism that was brewing. So notice that the white evangelical hardly even seems to care about libertarian uh, rhetoric these days. No, instead that desire is much more in the open now. So when considering the state of the United States in the Western world, I often return to this classic question posed by Baruch Spinoza and Wilhelm Reich and repeated by Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. The quote goes, The fundamental problem of political philosophy is still, why do men fight for their servitude as stubbornly as though it were their salvation? How can people possibly reach the point of shouting more taxes, less bread, after centuries of exploitation, why do people still tolerate being humiliated and enslaved to such a point, indeed, that they actually want humiliation and slavery, not only for others, but for themselves? Indeed, today, 
how do liberals desire nothing more than incremental reforms while leaving oppressive vectors of late capitalism untouched? How does the conservative pauper wish to lower taxes on the wealthy while depriving themselves living wages or health care? More precisely, how does one enjoy not only cruelty against others, but the suffering of the self as well? Whence comes the jouissance of sadism and masochism incurred when society is burned down? The populist's ideology exemplifies Marx's definition of ideology. They don't know it, but nevertheless they are doing it. But populism also expresses the more recent reverse of that famous formula, which is they know very well what they are doing, and nevertheless, they are still doing it. For political theorist Ernesto Laclau, what matters in populism is the coalition around the empty signifier, the people or real Americans, which then draws into its orbit various floating signifiers, such as law and order, or less regulation, or all lives matter, or pro-life. So an empty signifier, such as the people, can mean anything. It's a blanket term that you invoke, hoping people will jump on board with your program. And this is the first, uh, the first rallying point of a populist movement, is to name it something and attract people with that very vague name, right? The real American, the people, or so on. So unlike the empty signifier, which can mean anything, the floating signifier means a very specific thing, though it's never what it actually says. For the white supremacist, for example, the call for civility is a key floating signifier meant to dismiss authentic grief and justify aggression. Or consider how for the white evangelical, biblical is a floating signifier. It's meant not to indicate belief in the Bible or some sort of a uh, clearly superior hermeneutic of interpretation, but instead it's meant to dismiss alternative viewpoints. When you call yourself biblical, you're saying everything uh, that sees the world differently than you is not, right? Uh, it's meant to dismiss alternative viewpoints and underwrite narcissism. So each of these floating signifiers deliver multiple coded messages at once. Populist rhetoric does not have to be foolish, but it is always disingenuous. This aggressively populist logic drives sadistic and masochistic tendencies. It's not merely misinformed. It is enjoying, and we need to get better at recognizing counterintuitive locations of enjoyment in populist reason. The Unite the Right rally should have been a turning point, but instead it showed us just how much further we could sink. After a statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee was slated for removal, White supremacists gathered across the United States, and they bore down on Charlottesville, North Carolina, with Confederate flags and Nazi flags, and chanted, White Lives Matter and You Will Not Replace Us. As the night went on, the slogan mutated into, Jews Will Not Replace Us. The cartoonish nature of grown men expressing anger while wielding tiki torches turned quickly to horror as they marched near a church holding an interfaith prayer gathering. There were no casualties that night, and the next day was different. Early Saturday afternoon, a white supremacist drove his car through a crowd packed full of anti-racist demonstrators. Nineteen were injured, and Heather Hired suffered fatal injuries. Unwilling to judge barbaric violence or bigotry, the president equivocated, famously saying, and you had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. 
Remember again that the white evangelical makes up the most powerful and steadfast voting bloc behind Trumpism. But after the Unite the Right rally, too many in the media did what they always do with white evangelicals and Trump, namely ask why evangelicals don't see the contradiction between Jesus and Nazis. Why do they not see the hypocrisy? And this is the criticism that we actually need to reject. It's not that evangelicals are being inconsistent. They've always wanted hierarchy, nationalism, racism, and contempt for outsiders. It's us who have not wanted to believe it. And we need to open our eyes and see the counterintuitive positions that are being staked. All theology is political, just as all politics is theological. As famously described by the German jurist Karl Schmitt, who himself had some shameful relationships to fascism, he said, all significant concepts of the modern theory of state are secularized theological concepts. So just as God was sovereign, so too the nation state became sovereign. Just as God declared the exception to natural law via the miracle, so too the executive declares exception via the executive order. Just as baptism marked inclusion, so too social security cards delineate who is saved by citizenship or else damned. The only thing unavailable today is repentance. And that's what Walter Benjamin said when he described capitalism as the first case of a blaming cult rather than a repenting cult. A theology inevitably underwrites and justifies a political zone, which is precisely why it's so dangerous. It cannot forgive itself or the other. So as we draw this study of white evangelicalism to a conclusion, it's equally important to analyze the white nationalism always lurking underneath it and now beginning to express itself more openly than it has in generations. It's a threat which won't pass with a term limit on one administration or the election of another. This is not something that is going away. It's a crude symptom of a desire which was for too long allowed to cover itself with theological dogma and family values or positions on lowering taxes. For decades, it felt incensed if you didn't respect the pious and self-righteous rhetoric that it is now so quickly and eagerly abandoning at the first chance of an ethnostate. Conservative Christianity was dismissed as a fool's faith rather than as a declaration of intent, and that was our mistake. And we face a reckoning now, and we must rediscover the lessons of the 20th century critical theorist if we desire to understand the 21st century and survive into the 22nd. Or put it this way, how did the white evangelical respond when, in the summer of 2018, we learned of camps for children? As Wilhelm Reich cried in another era, of another group, we must now ask why the white evangelical desires now to be saved and then to damn, now to join the populist swell and then to desire fascism. <laughs>